0: Kia ora and welcome, I'm Francesca Piotrkiewicz and this is Homebody, a podcast that speaks to the experience of living with invisible and chronic illness or disability. It's a space to illuminate and educate on the stigmatized experience of pain that is not visually obvious. We live in a world so deeply tied to the physical, when in reality, much of our health and well-being are attributed to the unseen processes within our minds and bodies. It's possible to look good, but be silently unwell, have a disability, or be debilitated by your mental health. It's time for transparency. It's time we took what we can't see more seriously. Homebody aims to create a haven for all within these episodes. A breath of fresh air to guide us towards balance diving beyond the surface to understand our bodies and their non-linear fluctuations individually and holistically not everyone has a chronic illness or disability but everyone's health fluctuates and everyone has the right to self-care and to knowing their own bodies and regardless it'll give you something to chuck on in the background whether you're on lunch break taking a sick day or you've been stuck in bed for the last week Kia ora, I'm Francesca, and this is Homebody. Homebody is a podcast project that I've created for anyone who's ever suffered in silence, for anyone who's ever pushed through because they felt like they had to. Homebody will be a channel of voices to normalize health in all of its states and uplift the unheard, unseen narrative of living life played at a lower key. It's a podcast to promote self-care, love, and connection with the hopes of creating a world filled with transparency, balance, And a space for us all to realize we're allowed to look after ourselves our health and well-being are not linear and it doesn't have to be i personally was driven to create this podcast because of my own journey with chronic illness and disability and how that has pushed me towards a way of living that is more slowed down and kinder to myself where I allow myself to take steps with my health as a priority rather than work or uni or social relationships I know that I need to look after myself first before I can put energy into any of the other aspects of my life. I believe that in our world, there's a strong stigma around speaking about how we feel and addressing our health front on unless it's in crisis mode. For example, a lot of our society's culture and particularly what I've noticed growing up in Aotearoa New Zealand is that we have this narrative of wanting to push forward and ignore how our bodies and minds are communicating to us. I believe there should be a lot more work into looking at health holistically understanding all of the elements of what's going on in our lives and how that's affecting us and our well-being. There should be a lot more work around preventative care and understanding how we can support ourselves before we actually get to the crisis point, which is usually the first point we think to make change or to look after ourselves. Since realizing that I was part of the chronic illness or disabled community, I have connected with many people in this space and in the health space and well-being space that also share the same vision for the world and believe that we all should take better care of ourselves. So this is what drove me to create this podcast. So I'll start first with introducing the guests for this podcast. First, we've got Bianca.
1: Hey everyone, my name is Bianca. I am the founder of Neurospart. I'm an NLP practitioner, a life coach and a lightning process training practitioner. Essentially, I'm really passionate about the mind-body connection and teaching people how to retrain their brain and re-regulate their nervous system.
0: Bianca had her own experience living with chronic illness, suffering chronic pain from vulvodynia and fibromyalgia, as well as central sensitization syndrome. She was able to heal herself through working with a neurolinguistic programming practitioner or NLP practitioner and through doing the lightning process. She studied both of these and started her business NeuroSpark where she puts her psychology degree and these teachings into use to help other people with chronic illness heal their own pain. My next guest is Jess.
2: Hi, I'm Jess Bryan. I am the host and creator of the podcast That's So Chronic, where I share patient stories about chronic illnesses, injuries, disabilities, all sorts of diagnoses. I am also a performer. I have a comedy juggling show called Jess the Mess. In terms of being a bit of a mess myself, it all comes from the fact that I am living with a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis.
0: I chose to speak to Jess because she is a great communicator and uses her amazing communication skills to spread the word about chronic illness and normalize disability within mainstream media. My next guest is Sarah.
3: I'm Sarah Kao, I am a freelance medical writer. I'm also co-founder of Migraine Foundation Aotearoa in New Zealand, a registered charity supporting people with migraine, and I also live with migraine disease.
0: Sarah used to be a trained nurse and then changed her career pathway to be a medical freelance writer after realizing that there was a lack of knowledge and understanding around different medical conditions and also to support herself living with chronic migraine. And through her writing, she became a bit of an advocate for herself, as you do with chronic illness, and then went on to become a community advocate. She is now the founder of Migraine Foundation Aotearoa. New Zealand. My next guest is Sean.
4: Kyoto, co Sean Fucking Yua. I'm Sean Prince studying down here in Australia, studying politics and environmental management. Here to talk about my experience with a uh, traumatic brain injury.
0: He's a student at Otago and he is one of the co-founders of the Otago Disabled Students Association. My last guest is Dr. Josh Faulkner.
5: Kia ora everybody. My name is Josh Faulkner. I am a clinical psychologist and neuropsychologist and a lecturer based here at the School of Psychology at Victoria University of Wellington.
0: He is fascinated with the brain and has a PhD focused on the brain and concussion and other types of brain injury, which is the main reason why I wanted to talk to him, engage his experience and his perspective helping me to back up the argument on why we need to look after our health and why particularly we need to understand our mental health, our neurological health, working towards holistic health and looking after all parts of ourselves. I chose to talk to Sean and Josh mostly because they are experts in their own respect in traumatic brain injury or concussion and I had my own concussion so I thought it would be really great as the intro for this podcast series to speak to them about something that we can all add our own perspective onto. The process of this project was I had a 50-minute interview with each guest and talked to them about a couple different topics. The 50-minute space within this episode does not allow me to share all of their opinions and perspectives on all of these topics. So for this episode, it will just be an introduction focusing on the main topic of what is disability, what is chronic illness, what's the difference, and what Is it like to live with an invisible condition? This podcast is going to take a bit of a documentary style route rather than a conversational route. So throughout talking about my own story, I'll insert snippets from conversations with guests and their stories and their expertise where it's relevant I will end with their advice for someone starting their journey with chronic illness or disability or just for anyone on how to better look after their health and support themselves. So now let's move on to my invisible chronic illness story. Firstly, I grew up with a bit of a dilemma as there was consistent representation of mental illness in my family and I knew that there was a strong culture around me, that it was taboo to talk about mental illness, mental distress, mental health in general, to expose how you were feeling and to seek help. I developed anxiety and depression from a young age, and now one of my main chronic conditions is premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, which I was diagnosed with in 2020. I was diagnosed with PMDD after coming out of a depressive episode that occurred because I basically went into my first year of university living in the halls, and I didn't really understand why I was not having the best, most wonderful year of my life. There were probably people around me who were also silently suffering, but, you know, especially when you've met all of these people for the first time, it's not overly welcomed to chat about how you're feeling and connect on everything that's wonderful and everything that's not wonderful in your life. So yeah, but anyway, I came out of that depression in 2020 into my second year or my first year at Victoria. And I realized that I was still having dips within my mental health and they were cyclical happening two weeks each month before my menstrual phase of my menstrual cycle. So according to... IAPMD or the International Association of Premenstrual Disorders, PMDD is basically a negative response to the fluctuations of hormones during the menstrual cycle, in particular in the luteal phase, which is the phase two weeks before the period. For me, it looks like having a lack of the hormone progesterone. I don't get as much of that hormone and that hormone is meant to be a calming hormone. So for me, I get a bit of a, a dip in my mood instead of a, an ease into the the period. For a lot of undiagnosed people, it's just a confusion to why their mood is dipping, not understanding it's due to the cycle, and then just thinking that they are going crazy every month, which can be pretty scary when you don't know what you're going through. Being transparent, I take a low dose antidepressant for this condition, and I'm pretty high functioning. I have been pretty high functioning throughout all of my life, despite having mental illness and being around lots of mental illness. I think for me, if anything, being around that has taught me how to be High functioning and stressful situations, which unfortunately for me added to my high drive and kind of fast paced push hard energy that I also took from the culture around me, I guess, to keep going and to push through when I really needed to stop or slow down or look after myself. That leads me to my second chronic illness that I deal with that has taught me a lot and has taught me how to slow down and to pace my life a little slower and look after myself more. In February 2021, I was not thinking when I was getting into a car, I smashed my head into the top of the car door and gave myself a concussion. Basically, the way that I felt was, oh, that was probably a lot more intense than just your average head bump, but I'll be okay kind of forgot about it. And then an hour or so later, I was coming in and out of consciousness and I went to the a and I was getting sensory issues and just really headache. key. So in my A&E bed, I asked if I could move into a private room because there was a baby crying and it was just the most sensory overload situation I've ever had in my life. Not quite, but at that time it was. They basically, after maybe an hour or so, they gave me a briefing. They gave me a pamphlet saying, that I should not return to rugby for at least two months. I don't play rugby. They basically said, most of your symptoms should be gone within three days. Just rest in a dark room. Don't do anything. No stimulation, no work. Three days. Then you'll be all good.
5: This belief that you just go and rest for a couple of weeks and then after you rest, then you'll be fine. That's really now being debunked in the the scientific community is that we really need to get people moving early-ish do so in a supported way because if you completely rest, then you're not training their brain up. But if you're doing too much that your brain can't manage, it's just going to keep your fuel tank low or take more fuel from the tank that really needs to be to be used for your recovery.
0: The whole dark room thing, for me, I think it, it made going into spaces that were more sensorially overwhelming, just really more intense because yeah. I was going, oh my gosh, now there's all these different lights and now there's people talking and doing this thing. For the last week, I've been used to being in a room with the lights on
5: When people are told to go and rest for an hour or to go into a dark room for a few days and just rest and and take it easy, is that, yeah, you might be removing the external stimulation, but what is that meaning for your internal stimulation? So for me, I've got a very active mind. If I got told to go and sit for 40 minutes, I would just be going on and on and on in my head thinking about a whole bunch of different things and if you have a tendency to to be a warrior or to be a deep thinker or to ruminate over things that at times being told to go and rest removes the external but it ramps up the internal.
0: So a lot of things were happening in my life that now I realize probably contributed to the stress. I was starting my second year at Victoria But my third year of university, I was starting a new job as the station or podcast manager at Salient and also still working with other podcasting clients and I was moving into a new flat. So lots of new things were happening at the time that didn't really help the recovery journey. But anyway, I went into work about a week after for the first time. And like I said, I work as a podcast producer, manager and editor. So there's lots of sound, lots of screens, lots of people talking, lots of light, having to pay lots of attention to all of the sounds really, really concentrate. So yeah, I basically recorded the recording. It went for about an hour and a half maybe two hours and by the end of it i was flat out i had taken a couple breaks in between they were aware of the fact that I had a mild concussion but by the end of it I passed out and the client had to take me into a and I was coming in and out of consciousness again at A&E so A&E directed me to the hospital the emergency department I was in a wheelchair it's pretty scary experience but I ended up waiting for the CT scan at the hospital for about 6 hours and it was just as you might be able to imagine quite intense with the noise and sound light so I said I was feeling a little bit better and and asked if I could go home. They basically told me not to do any work or uni for two weeks and gave me a note. I didn't do that. I was a bit silly. I needed to start work, you know, with this new job. So I basically did it in the dark under a sheet.
4: Three and three quarters years ago, I was at a flat party and went out onto the balcony to get some air and leant on the balcony railing and the railing broke and the flat had a a drop-off into another flat's car park, so it ended up being three-story full, so 15 metres, and fractured my collarbone and T4 and then multiple hemorrhages in my brain was sort of lucky because I managed to hit the fence and then hit the car park. Also lucky that I'd had a couple of drinks. I think in the moment can't remember it other than what my neuropsychs helped me uh, remember. I must have done it quite limply, <laughs> which would have been a good thing. I went into an intensive care ward after the emergency room, was there for about a week, then a uh, neurological ward for about a week. And from the point that I can remember, I was seen daily by an occupational therapist. The occupational therapist was there to test to what degree my cognition was in bed, and i suppose to what degree it was recovering from that point which was immensely frustrating i mean it probably would have been a mixture of me being very cognitively impaired at the time and it being a confusing environment but i definitely didn't really understand what was going on yeah <laughs> i mean you know my understanding was that was that you know i would broken my collarbone t4 and i had a brain injury but i just needed rest yeah <laughs> i didn't really appreciate that they were doing some kind of screening but yeah I, they were absent one day and then tested me the next which pushed me over the edge as far as that frustration next to the fact that there was lots of beeping. And it was light there. So that was a nightmare. So I self-discharged and I tried to go back to studying law and catch up. My first tutorial back, which I think was probably the day after I self-discharged, I think I had probably was present for about five minutes of the tutorial and I was just in a bubble, the rest of it. I couldn't understand the person next to me talking to me or the lecturer. And pretty much the whole experience was wiped from my mind <laughs> the moment I'd left. So yeah, that was all really confusing and overwhelming. And yeah, kind of left me quite panicked.
0: <laughs> That's so intense. I mean... For me, well, obviously I think yours was a lot more severe, but our difference between your experience and my experience was mine was after COVID so it was a little bit more normalised that I could do things online so I I Mm. definitely still tried to work I look back now I'm like oh my gosh I really had no idea. Did you have that or did you because it was more severe
4: I was exactly the same I was completely confused I mean a lot of it down to self discharging right by the sounds of it with you as it was with me I had no understanding of what I was going through and I was only really made aware by that by trying to continue with normality I suppose. I've also so was in a bit of a party flat at the time mm. and so wasn't sleeping well it was just a, a nightmare as far as that went
0: by may i felt pretty much recovered i was doing most of my uni work from home, coming in occasionally. But then by June, I got a pretty intense flu, and then something happened that I didn't even realize could happen. I started getting all of my concussion symptoms back again, and I thought that I might have glandular fever or something because you know I was really fatigued, really tired. And my doctor actually told me that I had had a concussion relapse, so all of my symptoms came back for the first time. I got a concussion recovery team, so I had an OT and I occupational therapist. I had two different types of physio. I was going to consistent osteo. I had some sessions with a neuropsychologist and I was working with my therapist as well. I was at the point where I could look at a computer screen for maybe 10-20 minutes maximum and then need to sleep for about two to four hours to the rest of the day and luckily everyone at uni and work was really supportive and I was able to space everything out and I did end up finishing that trimester. I finished in December rather than late October.
5: We're actually not that focused on the injury. The injury is not actually that important. It's about what's happening in your life at present that may be ramping up symptoms. In the scientific community at the moment we're trying to view concussion from a holistic Perspective. We're trying to consider the fact that concussion symptoms can be caused by the injury, but can also be influenced or intensified or maintained by a whole range of, of other factors as well. It's not only just the injury that we're having to deal with. And as you mentioned earlier, it's often life we then also have to deal with because it's what we're putting our brain under when it is recovering that's going to have the biggest impact on recovery. And so again, one of the reasons why a psychologist has such a a critical role in supporting people in their concussion recovery is that those emotional symptoms we know really ramp up post-concussion symptoms. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because if you're feeling anxious, you often feel headaches or you often struggle to concentrate because, you know, your attention becomes hyper-focused or you feel really tired afterwards because your body has been in a state of just hyper-arousal as a result of those feelings. For example, just saying some numbers, you might have a a 60% headache. And that 60% headache is then rammed up to 90 or 100% because you've been in a really stressful work environment or you've been struggling with worries or you've been struggling with other things that happen in life. It's really understandable because, you know, when you're struggling with the effects of the injury then life just becomes so much harder.
1: Six months previous to when I first started having pain, I, I'm from Christchurch mm-hmm. and that's when we had the Christchurch earthquakes oh, yeah. and I was actually in the city for the main earthquake. It was my first day of uni oh my and gosh. I actually witnessed, I was very close to the CTV building that came down during the quakes and what I did and how I dealt with that was it was my first year of uni, like I just got stuck into uni. I moved from Christchurch to Adelaide for a semester with a lot of other University of Canterbury students just to take the pressure off our uni. So I had a lot of changes in that year already. And when I was sitting with this counsellor talking, I just remember feeling so emotional and it's almost like I hadn't acknowledged anything that had happened for that whole year. And it wasn't just the pain, it was the earthquakes, it was what I had witnessed and remembering that in Christchurch as well, we also had a city that was still shaking. There were always stresses going on in the background plus my first year of uni, plus all the pressure I put on myself. And she actually suggested that I get in touch with an NLP practitioner, which at the time I had no idea what that meant because there was some funding for earthquake trauma. Basically, I could get for free. So I went to this NLP session and she did a bit of hypnotherapy on me. We talked about the earthquakes and about just stress in general. And she did some really powerful techniques that really helped me visualize things slightly differently. And at the end of the session, she said, is there anything else that you are struggling with? And I was like, yeah, chronic pain has been ruling my life for the last three years. And she was the first person who said, okay, cool, let's sort that out. And I remember sitting there like (laughs) – just spent three years going around and round in circles. And she's like, the mind and body are very connected and obviously you've been through a lot of stress. Let's just see if we can start to calm your nervous system again. Let's see if we can start getting you back to baseline. And she explained to me that although the earthquakes weren't a cause of the pain, living in that state for six months leading up to me getting chronic pain, it had to be just something really simple. And this is what I see with a lot of my fatigue clients glandular fever or something that really knocks you. And then over time with other influences our pathways can become neurologically wired and then it's harder to get out and our nervous system becomes dysregulated I was looking for a physical cause to the pain I never considered the nervous system I'd never put pieces of the puzzle together so the mind-body connection to put it really simply is when we are having thoughts or we're thinking and it is having a shift in our physiology A really easy example that I'll use with my clients is you might be going on a first date or you might be going into a job interview. Like most of us, you're going to have some nervous thoughts and how that might actually show in your body might be like a funny tummy. It might be sweaty palms. It might be a heat rash, but it's how thinking can actually come out in our body. And vice versa, if we are living in chronic pain, years at a time it is going to affect our mental health so what's going on in our body will affect our mental health too so sometimes this isn't an immediate thing it can just be stresses it can be an emotional trauma energy can be held within our body and that can manifest into illness not for everyone but I do believe it is a big component that is often overlooked when we are looking at physical health conditions
5: So in the work that I do, I often talk about the fuel tank. And so when there's been an injury to the brain, it can reduce the amount of fuel. And when you're experiencing a really stressful day, or if you're struggling with being able to manage those headaches, yet you've still got lots of work that you need to do, then it's going to reduce that fuel tank even more. All of the work that we do in concussion recovery is trying to support individuals to boost that fuel tank up, because again, it takes away from, this notion that we're exclusively trying to focus on an injury, but we're trying to look at all the factors in life that may be contributing to that fuel tank. It's such a difficult balance because if you don't know where your fuel tank is, it's really hard to then manage it. If your day is going to be more than what your fuel tank can manage, you are then going to crash. But we also have this other challenge is that if we don't use the fuel tank it's never going to replenish so we often talk about the fuel tank as being like a muscle so you've got to strengthen the fuel tank and expose it to certain activities and tasks and demands because if you don't it's just going to become really weak and the overall goal of concussion recovery is to make sure that your life is at the level of where your fuel tank is and so underdoing it might be feeling low in mood feeling depressed feeling quite anxious and fearful about going out and doing things. So as a result, we're not pushing as far as we need to. Or there may be a tendency towards, you know, being in denial, not understanding the injury. Life is really hard and difficult. I've got to do it even though I've got headaches and my fuel tank's only at 50%.
0: I have learned that without even having the terminology that you've explained it with, which is really helpful as a visual. When I first got my concussion, I was sitting in a dark room for a really long time, not doing anything. And when I got into the recovery program about six months in and the team, I think particularly the neuropsych and the OT and the physio were all saying to me, oh, you should have maybe done a little bit of slow movement and to let yourself know that you were able to do those things rather than I thought that I couldn't do anything. My fuel tank was very low because I didn't think it could be any higher, if that makes sense. That had a big impact on me. I now know that there are things that I can do to ensure that I have more energy and that for me is doing a little bit of exercise a day and meditation and things, things that I can do that rest and then also stimulate my muscles and my brain, but also support me to do more in my day. It's really interesting to learn that because I don't think I really thought about my life as holistically as I do now.
4: Definitely, but it does make
5: a lot of sense because, you know, if you're struggling with a really bad headache and that headache was caused by, I don't know, reading a book, it's totally going to be understandable that you're going to not want to read a book because you would be worried that that really terrible headache is going to come back. And this is patterns that everybody I've worked with falls into and that's totally, totally understandable. And as you say, it's just then being able to get an understanding where my level is and what are some things that I can then start to do to be able to break it down and sort of get support. And often in concussion, we use this term graduated return to activity and that graduated return to activity is about breaking tasks down so it might not be well, I'm reading a book. It might just be, okay, I'm going to read a couple of words on a page and see how that goes. And then I'm going to go move up to a sentence. Yep, it might cause a little bit of discomfort, but that's okay because we are building that brain back up. Concussion recovery is like training for a marathon. Um, So if you have never run before, and you're then going to be told to go out and run two hours, then there's no way your body is going to cope and manage that. If you don't run at all, you're then never going to be able to reach that goal of being able to train for the marathon. But when you run, Sometimes it hurts and sometimes it is difficult. But what that hurt is, is your body strengthening and your body being able to tolerate more and more. That's a sign that our brain is getting used to demand and it's getting used to getting back to life. Yes, that can be really hard at times. And we want to make sure we're doing it in a way that's not then going to be causing huge amounts of distress or or overdoing it. Your ability to make those decisions and have that awareness is all done by your brain, but your brain is injured and is not necessarily able to accurately reflect on where your fuel tank is or accurately reflect on maybe this is too much or maybe I'm not doing enough.
0: I'm basically recovered now, but I still have moments where, depending on what's going on in my life, like I had COVID earlier in the year and that may my symptoms come back or if I've got a lot going on, I'll see symptoms come back more intense. But I usually do have symptoms in some way or another every day but I'm pretty good at moving through them and looking after myself something that we talk about quite a lot within this introduction episode and something I talk about specifically with Sarah Carl is giving chronic illness and giving disability and giving these things that happen to us in our lives that interrupt our lives meaning and purpose
3: as I was learning about how to manage migraine better I thought there must be other people like me who's searching for this information so I started writing about it Fiona is an epidemiologist in Wellington who also lives with migraine. And she found my blog and she had said to me, if I ever take things further with my blog, some advocacy work or something like that, she'd be really keen to help as well. Mm-hmm. And Suzanne is the other co-founder. She's originally from Australia. And so she did some volunteer work with Migraine in helix like Australia. She's a lawyer as well. And so she has migraine herself, came to New Zealand and went, oh, you know, try and get in contact with a migraine charity here. And then she's like, oh, there's actually no migraine yeah. charities here so so I found my blog and connected with me and said hey keen to help that kind of all set on the backburn a little bit because it was quite daunting to think that we really need to start a not-for-profit or a charity and how much work that would be but in about October last year so nearly a year ago myself Fiona and Suzanne got talking we're like okay actually now we really need to do this there's a real need in New Zealand for a charity lots of things changing in migraine medication world that we need to be advocating for and no one was doing it so so, yeah, we got together from October, started talking about it. Then we launched the not-for-profit the 1st of April this year. And then we got our charitable status at the end of July. So now we're a registered charity. That's so um, cool. Yeah, it's, it's been a really good journey. And it's kind of one of those journeys that you feel as though your life was meant to take this path. It gives meaning to having migraine. You're not just sitting there dealing with this, but it's actually going, okay, it gives your you know, migraine maybe a purpose not that I want to have migraine but it's made me more in control of migraine Going, you know steer the course of my treatment and and things in New Zealand so
0: shifting the way that you think about having an illness or a disability or thinking what can I do with this how can I give this meaning within my life or how can I learn lessons on from this as well I think is really cool and
3: it's not something that everyone can do or should do I think I just found that position that I could do it. A lot of people have migraine and are busy doing other things and and people probably have migraine worse than I do. It felt like I was coming from a place of privilege that I had all these things that helped me. Mm. be able to co-found this Migraine Foundation. I think I accepted a long time ago, it is about acceptance that you've got this disease and it's not going away and you can either succumb to that or go, screw you, Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to do something.
0: I think it's actually really cool though that through using your privilege to be able to do something like this, you know, because you say it's hard for everyone to find meaning in having something like this, Mm. but I think through doing that work and providing that space, you are almost guiding people towards finding
3: meaning, if that
0: makes sense, because you're giving them the resources to hopefully help themselves more.
3: It was. It was just about sharing what I had learned and sharing information and people can take bits. But yeah, people might just get snippets of information.
0: It's about kind yeah. of creating that community because, you know,
2: even Absolutely. if someone can yeah.
0: relate to a bit of your story, then that's helpful.
2: I was really inspired to start that So Chronic because I was feeling incredibly alone, but I was also very convinced that I couldn't be the only person there had to have been somebody else out there and I was on a bus on my way back down to Queenstown and I was listening to a podcast and it was with a person called Chris she is behind how to glitter a turd on Instagram she's also just released a book Recently, and she was being interviewed because she has been living with stage four incurable breast cancer for the last, I think, about 13 or 14 years. And she said a sentence where she was like, You hear all of these stories of people that have had cancer and they've died. You hear stories of people that have had cancer and they've survived, but you don't hear stories of people that are just living with cancer. And I was immediately inspired and I was like, Yeah, where are the stories of the people that? Aren't inspiring the people with MS that aren't climbing Mount Everest? Like, where are the stories of the people that are just living their lives with chronic illnesses or injuries or disabilities or any sort of diagnosis? And I was like, okay, I'm going to make a podcast. I want to interview as many people as possible. And the rest is history. I just feel so honored and so privileged that people share their stories with me and that I get to facilitate a little bit of this work with the world and I get to share some stories. And I love it so much. Yeah, I've found great benefit being able to chat to people across the spectrum of conditions or diagnoses or lived experiences because, yeah, there's just something that connects all of us, whether that be a specific symptom or whether that just be the fact that in the blink of an eye, our lives completely changed. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding a lot of comfort being able to connect with people from across the world with magnitude of different things going on for them. And I think I also just live my life by this motto or mantra or sentence, an incredible person called M. Carey has said she had a skydiving accident and tells her story of living after that accident. And she wrote down in a moment while she was in hospital in Switzerland, if you can, you must. That has really Stood out to me. It's so true that if you can, you have to do it. Because I would really hate for something major to happen to me. And I look back and I really wish that I had done more or I wish that I had done less. It can be as simple as if you can go to the beach for a walk today, you should. For the days that you can't go to the beach for a walk. Do it for those times where you just wish that you could do it. But that's something that I've definitely base a lot of my decisions and life decisions around is. If you can, you must. You just have no idea what's around the corner. So I try to make my life as fulfilled as possible for those moments where I can't get out of bed or I can't do what I would love to do.
0: And for me, the purpose has been that it's taught me a lot about slowing down and really looking after myself because I hadn't been looking after myself. I had been prioritizing work in uni and it makes sense to me now why the recovery process has gone on for so long because I really, from the first place, did not look after myself. But I also was not in an environment where I was able to look after myself, especially having an invisible illness. It wasn't obvious to anyone why I couldn't work. It was hard to advocate for until again those crisis points when I was really struggling. The reason why I am addressing this specifically and the fact that often we are taught to keep pushing and only look after ourselves or take breaks or check in with ourselves at crisis point or when something seems really wrong is because I wanted to ground this podcast in something that everyone can understand. And for me, I believe that is the message of transparency. Even if you don't have a chronic illness or disability, as we've mentioned throughout this podcast, life still gets in the way. We still have things happen with friends and family that can upset us or interrupt us. We have events that we need to plan for, assignments, work due dates big meetings, conferences, first date, social gatherings that we're stressed about, anxious about. Within our lives, there are multiple factors and aspects that can influence our mood and our ability to focus. And this is why I think it's extremely important For us to be transparent and have open communication about the way that we are feeling and what's going on in our lives under the surface. We all have things going on in our lives that people don't know about when they see us at first glance and we don't have to keep these things concealed. I really want to normalize that and I think that's something that people within the chronic illness and disability space really know front on, especially when you have an invisible chronic illness or disability. It's very hard to advocate for yourself and you almost sometimes feel like you have to prove yourself to why you may be needing the support that you need. When really everyone, regardless of their health, state, or condition, needs support sometimes and needs to take breaks and look after themselves. An anecdote that I thought you might appreciate is when I was organizing my guests. I was emailing back and forth with Sean particularly and he sent me an email on the recording day and said, hey, I'm actually feeling a little bit under the weather today, just wanted to address that and he opened up to me about how he was feeling and that was really great because
4: for me, it's like largely just an act of reciprocity, right? It's really whatever expectation you set for people that you're journeying with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you do bone yourself to a crisp, then other people will think that that's the expectations. I suppose for me with disability, I, a lot of that... It comes back down to the stigma and how people relate to their own disability, whether people feel comfortable with having that level of transparency so that people know where they're at.
0: I made sure to check in with my guests throughout every record and see if they needed to take breaks, especially because all of us, except for Bianca and Josh, have chronic illness and disability. But it just really spoke to the point that we should be doing that consistently. We should feel like we're allowed to address how we're feeling and what in our life may be affecting us, but that's not normalized. So I want to normalize it. The next part of this podcast is a question that I asked Jess, Sean and Sarah to answer for me, and that was, what is chronic illness? what is disability what's the difference and what is it like living with an invisible chronic illness or disability and this sparked up a lot of different conversation and as this is the intro into homebody which is grounded within spreading awareness on the experience of invisible chronic illness and normalizing transparency and self-care i thought it would be really good to put this portion into the podcast
2: By definition, a chronic illness is a condition that lasts for one or more years and it's also something that needs regular medical attention or it's something that you think about all the time. I'm not sure if I necessarily subscribe to the belief that that's what a chronic illness is because I know that a lot of people may be diagnosed with a chronic illness and it isn't lifelong for them. It's not something that they require medical attention all the time for. There are people that may have even been diagnosed with MS. They know that there's lesions on their brain, but they have never had to take treatment and they have never had a relapse for the rest of their life. So I do understand that labeling different conditions as chronic illnesses can be problematic because not everybody would believe that to be the case and I guess in terms of disability I I don't necessarily define myself as living with a disability I definitely use the label living with a chronic illness but I've been doing a lot of thinking about disability recently and with someone that I was interviewing on that so chronic and I guess with disability it is that there are parts of the environment around me whether that be the physical environment Or whether that just be the environment in which I live and what makes up my reality, that does limit my ability to do certain things, which is what I would describe a disability to be. Because a disability can be physical, it might be mental, there are so many different parts and aspects to that. But for me, I think because... I'm not being limited in my abilities consciously a lot of the time. And so that's why I don't feel like I resonate with the label disability for my condition just at the moment. I'm very aware that things could change. Yeah, so that's why I prefer to just say that I'm living with a chronic illness. But I mean, I'm the biggest hypocrite because I did fill out a form the other day and I said that I was living with a disability. So I do definitely use it from time to time. But on that form, I ticked living with a disability. And then I wrote in brackets, a chronic illness. Mm. So (laughs) it's a journey trying to figure out what these words and labels mean.
0: It can be really confronting for me. One of the reasons why I'm asking this question, when I was needing support from the uni, they referred me to the disability services. And at first, that was very confronting. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is so strange. But I think there's a lot of stigma around seeing yourself as having a disability or being disabled for whatever reason at whatever time and I think that's one of the main things that I want to tackle with doing this project is talking about the different scales of disability or chronic illness and especially invisible chronic illness and how we feel when we have an invisible chronic illness and how that impacts how we feel around speaking about it or acknowledging it because you can't actually see it unless you're having an attack or whatever is happening to you, you know? Yeah. So Something that I came across a lot when doing my research for this project, the main thing is I watched a documentary, I think it's just called Invisible Chronic Illness, and this woman was talking about when she goes out to the supermarket, she'll park in the disabled park, but then she feels like she has to amp up her symptoms to look disabled when actually she does need that park because she needs to get in and out quickly and that kind of thing. Yeah. Or like people talking about the bus seats, the disabled area on the bus and feeling like they can't use those, that kind of thing. I think it's a really interesting thing to think about what do we view as chronic or a disability or something that affects us long term, you know?
2: Yeah, that is so interesting because when I was just talking before about how whether I relate to living with a disability, it's so interesting because I don't necessarily relate so that I can go out there and publicly with a big sign on my forehead saying, I am disabled, I have a disability. But definitely when I'm getting on public transport, I'm like, let me sit on the seat because my legs, my balance, Everything is just not good right now. Mm -hmm. I, I deserve to sit in this seat. And so, yeah, it's like at different times what you resonate with. Like I would just really love for people to know that it doesn't matter if on Monday you decide to say that you live with a disability and on Tuesday you're like, nah, I don't. I have a chronic illness. Like Mm -hmm. everything can just change because a lot of these sort of chronic illnesses or injuries or whatever it is that people are living with, the symptoms can vary so much day to day hour to hour even, you know, by 5pm after a big day of walking or at work, come home and and your whole reality has changed Mm -hmm. and the whole way that you define what you're living with changes as well. So it's definitely not, it's not a straight line Mm. at all.
0: Yeah, no, 100%. (laughs) I mean, that even just happened to me over the last week because I was having a really great week with having pretty much no symptoms and thinking, oh, I'm doing great. And what I'm doing to help myself is really working and then got to Friday or Saturday And I had a migraine and I needed to take the whole day off, take everything really slowly. And it's just so, so interesting when your life is firstly, what you're dealing with is invisible. And then secondly, it's moving up and down. So like it's harder to, you know, if you've got a work commitment or even a friend commitment, you know, they saw you fine last week and then now suddenly you're not. It makes things very complicated, I think.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I had a moment after I was diagnosed that – Some people really didn't understand my reality because I was at drama school. I was dancing full time. It was a, you know, a degree in performing arts, majoring in musical theater. So there was a lot going on. And I think when you are doing something that is outside of the norm, I guess, of society, a lot of people don't understand and so, yeah, there was a bit of confusion about how an MS diagnosis was going to fit into the life that I was trying to create for myself. And I was feeling extremely worried that I wouldn't be able to make both things work, and there were some support workers and nurses that were also confused as to how I was going to be able to make that work. But I'm pleased to report that it was possible. Things definitely had to change. My path has not looked like my classmate's path at all. A specific moment is like, I would love to perform on cruise ships, and that just wasn't really in my reality when you had to be in hospital every four weeks you might not even be at land in four weeks when you're working at sea or whatever you know yeah some things have really had to change but it's been so rewarding being able to make both fit into my life and I think that I've been able to make it work because so many other people have been able to make it work before me. And I didn't know that they were living with anything until I started being open with what I was living with. And then people start coming out of the woodwork and they start sharing their stories. And you realize that a lot of these people that you're seeing on TV at night, you know, they've got a lot going on behind closed doors. And um, yeah, it's been really, especially living with an invisible illness Mm -hmm. is tricky because a lot of people can't see if I'm not having an an episode or anything. They can't see what's going on. And so it can be really difficult for people to understand. But I hope that by sharing stories and connecting with people and by sharing my story, I hope that that makes people realize that no dream is too big. You can definitely do it. You might just have to change up the way that you make it happen, but it's definitely possible.
0: I love that. That's great. And I I really like your tagline when you say stories of people who are thriving and sometimes just surviving because I think that's something that I've learned through my journey with having post concussion syndromes, especially, is that life isn't always going to be going and you you know, you have to think about your life in a balanced way. And you know, it comes back to that holistic approach as well, thinking about what can you do in different areas of your life to support yourself.
4: For me, I would say that disability is a differing normative ability, which means that disabled people are more alienated by nature than non-disabled people. So everyone being alienated by nature in general in terms of not being able to, I guess, completely fulfill our aspirations, not just being greater in disabled people based on not fulfilling what a normative ability is. And so in terms of thinking about what that limited ability would be, that can be a physical impairment, mental health, psychological conditions, our learning, sensory impairments, neurodiversity, our chronic illness, and individuals in the deaf community as you may know which was actually an interesting one for me individuals at least within the deaf community view themselves as a cultural minority Mm. um, and not disabled Um, and I think individuals from the neurodiverse community relate to that in a similar way so I think also within disability. You have the cross-cutting theme of identity as to whether people do or don't identify with it, which is kind of what we touched on a bit already. I guess a way to also ground that definition is thinking about the social model of disability, so the idea that disability arises from an interaction between an individual's impairment and one's environment. The insight to be drawn out there, which can kind of get lost in the politicisation of disability, is that provision can reduce the material alienation that disabled people can experience, but there's also an embodied nature to disability. And think about that, you can think of someone in a wheelchair where that alienation can be decreased by thinking about them having a definability, having provision for accessibility. It doesn't mean they're going to be able to walk, but I think it reduces that alienation to such a point that they can go about that day. (laughs) As far as the stigma side of things go, I think the biggest thing around it is that lack of understanding, lack of education around disability. And so the stigma sort of arises that disabled people are less capable in certain domains. There's there's going to be truth in that, but it doesn't mean disabled people should be treated with any less dignity, for sure. Then comes back to that wheelchair example, the idea for a lot of disabled people, it's just a a different mode of being or a different means to a similar end, which is really just appreciating diversity in that sense.
3: I never used to think that I have a disability, and thinking about saying that I have a disability is actually really confronting. Because mm. besides migraine, I have a very normal life, and I've always had migraine, and migraine runs in my family. But you know, from what I've learned over the last few years, is that migraine is the fourth largest cause of disability in New Zealand, and it's mm. just not recognised as a disability. Yeah. But I've tweaked my life so much to fit in with migraine that you kind of forget how much you do sacrifice and make changes freelancing as a writer because I knew turning up to a job Monday to Friday nine to five I just couldn't do living with a chronic condition it just in some ways you know it makes you prioritize your health and it makes you really grateful for the good days for me that is days when I can just go about with no head pain and I don't feel nauseous and I don't have to take medications But yeah, I think if I didn't have the support of my husband and was doing it on my own, I wouldn't be able to work. I don't know, maybe I'd have to claim a disability or or something. So it's really hard to recognise that because you don't have a physical disability, but it affects your brain and it affects how much you can concentrate. I find it quite hard after three or four hours on my computer. And I think everyone's got something. No one's health is perfect. No one has these perfect, or maybe they do, but (laughs) no one has these perfect magical days. So. I think it's just learning to just not overcommit, you know, just, yeah, learning how to live with it in your everyday life. And so many people with migraine just push on through because we have to. So many people live with chronic migraine that, you know, if you stop doing what you're doing when you had pain, you'd never get anything done. People talk about, you know, you just look so well, and you're like, yeah, well, yeah, but we're just dealing with chronic pain. When people know me quite well, they can tell when I've got a migraine attack, they can just tell I'm a little bit tired, Mm. my eye droops a little bit. But, you know, beyond that, you wouldn't know that anything is going on in your brain. But there's, like, so many neurological conditions that there are no other symptoms except, well, pain and the nausea and stuff.
0: Mm. I think an interesting thing also is, like, having to think about pain on a scale. Uh, (laughs) Whether you can keep going, like you're thinking, oh, I've got a little bit of irritation here, so maybe I can keep going for a little bit, and you have to actively track things. I've I've found that to be a really interesting experience. So the next section of the podcast is going to be the ending section of this podcast, and this is basically just any advice that my guests could think about for someone starting their journey with invisible chronic illness or disability, but also I think a lot of these things apply for anyone. Who is going through something in their lives that they need support for, whether that be a health condition or whether that just be any situation you would rather not do alone?
1: What I wish I had known maybe at the start was first of all, depending on what it is, I do think there are some amazing positive success stories. So just try and hold that hope. Don't be disheartened if one thing doesn't work for you. Follow what feels good for you and be open to looking at things differently, whether that means. If you've got a physical condition and you're willing to look into your mental health as well, maybe that's a huge shift you haven't yet thought about. On the opposite side, maybe you're dealing with some mental health issues and you go and get some body work or massage. But also just know that if something is not working in your life beyond a chronic illness, like your job or your relationship, there is something that you feel is on top of the chronic illness weighing you down then you can always make shifts in your life and your environment too, which can have an effect on your healing as well.
5: Definitely get that injury seen. Even if you're a little bit, oh, I was just sort of minor, or I just felt a little bit dazed, you know, I don't think this is a big deal and sort of flog it off as nothing i really really urge you to go and get that seen by a doctor because what happens is that if we're not necessarily managing it it's just going to continue to intensify over time so it's such an important part right your brain you use for everything
0: That's great advice. I relate to that as well, because I think the only reason I went to A&E initially was because I knew someone who had had a severe concussion. So when I hit my head, I thought, oh, that hurt a little bit more than usual, but it's fine. But then within an hour, I was kind of moving in and out of consciousness and thinking, oh, this is a bit weird. And the Mm. only reason I actually did something and asked someone to take me in was because I knew someone who had had a similar experience.
4: So yeah, for advice for someone starting their journey with chronic illness, for me, it's just like the biggest one is to do what you can to get the health support you need and so that can start with getting a family member or a friend or there's even advocacy services like we mentioned with the brain injury, Otago or depending on where you're situated so that you can get the health providers you need. When I self-discharged I completely fell off the radar of any kind of support service and I was fortunate enough that my auntie then got me back into ACC, making sure that you have people that can support your self-advocacy and advocate for you to make sure that you have the health providers or health support that you need. I think particularly with Invisible. disabilities you're not going to walk past someone and know that they're having the same struggle as you with visible disabilities perhaps that's going to be the case there's trials and tribulations with with each perhaps you experience more stigma uh, with one perhaps you experience more unconscious bias with another you know it's pretty nuanced but if you embrace an identity like disability or maybe it's just that you are proactive in your communication around what your impairment is if that uh, disability doesn't uh, fit you then you're going to find that commonality with a lot more people Um, and that has been such a huge one for me I think um, my mate hates me for the phrasing, but like something that I really try to do is like confronting my cringe Mm. in the sense that like a huge one for me and I think is a big case with disabled people is you have a different mode of being, right? For me with my brain injury, I like always carry around a sleep mask and noise cancelling headphones and I'll just plunk myself down wherever and I'll just sit there and start meditating. When I was in Auckland with one of my mates, I got people started taking pictures and thought I was like some kind of like, you know, static art type thing (laughs) Um.
0: I love that that's so funny yeah
4: but yeah it's just confronting your cringe in that sense it's the same it's tapping into what you can do and making that work for you and confronting the way that that aligns differently to other people's norms
3: one that has been really helpful is finding people who understand through Migraine Foundation Aotearoa New Zealand's got a private Facebook support group which has been amazing and it's connected people with Migraine in New Zealand and to be able to share tips and, and thoughts and ask questions has been amazing. Educate yourself as much as you can. Learn as much as you can. And I guess be kind to yourself. Show yourself kindness and compassion that you would for other people we are really hard on ourselves yeah like you know but you think yeah if you're walking along with a friend and friend was saying to me oh you know I'm so nauseous today I've got a sore head you wouldn't just go get on with it come on it's just a headache you'd be be really empathetic to them and I think you're just going to do that to yourself Mm -hmm. so
0: I think my mindset was thinking oh why can't I I do this I wish I could do this I used to be able to do this but Mm. you know you just take it one step at a time and you you realize oh well yeah but I I did go for that walk today or I did do this today so I'll feel better tomorrow hopefully and if I don't that's all right as well you know yeah
2: Yeah, even if you are living with a diagnosis or perhaps you're just living with symptoms and you don't actually have a diagnosis yet, my biggest piece of advice would be you are the boss of your life, of your health, of your chronic illness, of your disability, of your whatever, and your medical team and the people that you are seeing to try and seek a diagnosis or to try and manage your symptoms, they actually kind of work for you And you are the boss, you're the CEO of this whole shebang. And so if something doesn't feel right for you, you are well within your rights to go and find another medical professional, a second opinion, somebody else that might listen to you or give you the respect that you believe that you deserve in this moment within reason obviously things aren't going to be perfect all of the time but definitely just knowing that you are in charge and you are the boss it's your chronic illness at the end of the day you have to go home and lie in bed at 3 a.m unable to go to sleep because you're so worried about what the future might look like and it's your life and nobody knows your body like you do so if that means that you have to advocate for yourself if that means that you have to be louder for the people that aren't listening yes totally fine just do it
0: so that brings us to the end of the introductory episode of homebody thank you so much for listening i hope you feel a stronger desire to check in with those around you and check in with yourself and know that it's okay to outline how you're feeling and to recognize when you're less able to do the things that you want to do and know that doing this will ensure that you can do what you want to do at your best possible ability. Thanks so much, kakite.